As we come back together, again, my great thanks to uh, Steve Green for jumping in on such short notice and uh, bringing the word uh, last week and reminding us of God's uh, love and grace. Um, it was uh, quite a thing, but um, I've, uh, I'd like to think I'm, I'm, I'm on a road to recovery, but again, uh, health being a sliding scale, we'll see. Um, but uh, we have been uh, just starting a study on uh, leadership, uh, on uh, preparation for uh, a leadership class coming up, and uh, Lord willing, adding to our, our ranks, uh, not just on the session, but uh, in the mercy ministry of the church, in the care uh, for those inside and outside the congregation, through diaconal ministries, and, uh, and in other areas of uh, ministry in the church. And so uh, trying to lay uh, a little bit of a uh, foundation for a biblical understanding of, of leadership uh, built on a basic understanding of who Christ is, of course, uh, but also unpacking uh, the implications of the fall and how that has stressed and stretched uh, our ability to lead and to care for one another well. And so we started, not surprisingly, several weeks ago in Genesis. Uh, we started in Genesis chapter 3. And what I laid out initially was where Adam, in his responsibility to care and shepherd his sister uh, in the Lord, Eve, or at that point she hadn't been named, the woman. Uh, so uh, the woman... Uh, was entering into a conversation that was not for her good with the serpent. And we saw in three ways in which Adam failed in a way that Christ regularly does not fail in caring for his sister in the Lord. And the first was that he failed to comfort her in the character and nature of who God is. And so as the serpent in Genesis 3 tried to undermine the goodness of God... Did he really act as generously as you say? Can you eat from the fruit of the garden? God is a liar. You shouldn't trust him. He just wants you to stay under him and so he can stay in charge because he knows that if you eat the fruit, you'll be like him. So God is an untrustworthy person of low character. And what Eve needed at that moment and what we all need, particularly uh, from our brothers and sisters in Christ in seasons when... We feel the brokenness of this world when we feel the consequences of our sin. We need comforted in the character and nature of who God is. Because one of the things I'm always tempted to do when I feel poorly, uh, either emotionally or physically, is in some way wonder why God has left me in this pit of despair. And there is a reality that God's presence is, is at times uh, distant from me. But that doesn't change his nature and his character. And part of the way towards my healing and yours is a recognition of who God is. It's why the Psalms are so full of recounting God's faithfulness to his people time and time again. His nature, his character. And so what we need in the body of Christ, uh, what scripture encourages us, what is such a blessing, is the gift of comfort. The gift of being able to comfort people by pointing them back to the character and nature of God. Our leaders need to be those who comfort us in the character and nature of a loving and kind and generous and just and merciful God. 
The second was that we need uh, an ability to confront. Adam needed to confront the snake. You really shouldn't call God a liar. And he needed to confront Eve in her engagement in the conversation. We need folks who are willing to engage with us and not just wave at us as we drive off of life's cliffs. Uh, To be too nice to confront is really to just be selfish enough not to be concerned enough to get complicated in another's life. There is a reality at points where in our friendships and our closest relationships, if we don't find opportunity, when we know we need to, to gently confront with the dangers and the false narratives that a loved one or a friend is telling themselves, we fail in the same way that Adam failed. Eve, God didn't say we couldn't touch it. Don't add to it. Why are you adding to it? What's going on with your thought process where you would feel like you needed to add the notion of not even touching? Serpent, how dare you call the creator of the universe small and jealous and petty? We know that Christ regularly confronts even as he comforts. He confronts when our thoughts and our actions run contrary to the character and nature of what it means to be image bearers and children of God. And lastly, we talked about the call. And that is to say we need leaders and brothers and sisters who not only comfort and not only confront, but are also, (coughs) excuse me, call us forward. Call us on to what we're to be about. That conversation with the serpent was over and Eve and Adam needed to go and do the business of glorifying the garden, of experiencing and being image bearers out in creation. Adam needed to call Eve away from the language of the serpent into the following of their creator, the God who came and walked with them in the cool of the day. And so we're going to continue, uh, that was a a longer opening, uh, to work through these three ideas that what the character and nature of our leadership uh, needs to be and what we want to encourage in our own lives are godly men and women who understand this role and are embodying this character of Christ-like discipleship in areas of comfort confronting and of calling us to follow Christ. We looked uh, two weeks ago at the little story in Mark chapter 12 of the poor woman, poor widow, who gives her last two copper coins. And of course, this is a teaching moment for the disciples who've just recently asked if they could again sit on his right hand and his left. They're thinking about power and leadership in the normal way in which humans do, which is position and authority and power and stuff. And they're no doubt watching uh, with Jesus as the wealthy keep dropping wonderful gifts into the offering box there at the temple during the Passover week. And they're, they're impressed Uh, And Jesus points out that the woman who gave two coins gave more than all the rest because she gave herself. 
And she put herself in a position of dependency upon God, which is actually all of our positions. It's just most of us live gleefully ignorant. Well, maybe not gleefully. Terrified that we may be dependent upon God. Terrified about what happens when I lose control of my faculties mentally, financially, fill in the blank. And Jesus uses this woman as a, again, teaching moment for the disciples of what it means to be those who lead in a different fashion. That woman led by showing that she was dependent upon God that she trusted in the goodness of God. She called them to know the comfort of God by her action, as Jesus points it out. Confronted by their own confused vision and called, as he had in places like the Sermon on the Mount, to not worry about tomorrow. But in the faithful living out of the kingdom, to worry about our provision, not from our own hands, but to trust that as we follow in our calling, that Christ will provide, that God will provide for His people, as He did in the desert, and as Jesus showed in His own preaching. And so we see that Jesus delights in His own teaching to stretch His leaders, those leaders in training, by utilizing the wisdom of saints that we might not expect to be the leaders. A woman with barely two copper pennies is used as a powerful illustration about what godly leadership and trust looks like. And Jesus delights to show his disciples the power of faith. This morning, we will look at Abigail. Uh, Abigail is uh, a wonderful godly woman in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Uh, I think you've got that passage in your uh, scriptures, in your uh, bulletin. But I'm going to this morning, because I'll refer back to that text, I'm going to go ahead and uh, jump to 1 Timothy. Because I know sometimes I can be oblique, uh, which I'm working on. Uh, But... If we're talking about leadership in the church, I suppose I should read and remind us uh, of what Paul says in one of the famous passages about leadership in the church. And so I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 3 just as a, a backdrop and a context for what we're talking about when we think through those qualities of leadership and how Paul is in line with everything we've just said in this promo, and everything that we're going to unpack in the life of Abigail and David's interaction are exemplifying lived illustrations, applications of the amazing passage in Luke where on the road to Emmaus, the disciples say, my stars, didn't our hearts burn within us as he unpacked everything in the Old Testament and how it pointed to Christ. And so with that expectation, let's put the familiar passage of 1 Timothy in front of us. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask again that we might rest in your word. We thank you for the power of Isaiah, the comfort of 1 Corinthians. We pray, Lord, that even now as we read parts of your Old Testament and reflect on the character and nature of what it means to be servants and servant leaders in your kingdom, that you might encourage your people. And Lord, whatever is said that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So how do you know someone's humble? It may be sort of, I don't know, so I saw a joke recently about how do you know someone's a vegan? They tell you, right? Uh, usually something people like to share. How do you know somebody is uh, humble? Well, awkwardly, sometimes they tell you. Uh, right? We, we, uh, we sometimes have that situation. It's also uh, confusing. Sometimes we think someone's humble just because they don't talk, which again, Proverbs suggests is not a bad way to play things, right? Keep your mouth shut so that people will think you're wise, lest you open it and prove that you are not, uh, which makes my line of work rather challenging. But being quiet or shy, of course, is not biblical humility. It is, in its greatest sense, the ability to recognize that the Lord can and will use everything in our lives to transform us. It's the assumption that we need to be transformed. Humility has a sense about it that we are in the process of learning, that we are not done that we are being sanctified, that we're being structured, that we don't know how to do things with this new heart we've been given. We're not trying to earn a new heart, but this heart of Jesus beats so radically different than E.C. Bell's personal heart, the one that I had in and of my own flesh. Human hearts often beat to all of the normal stresses and all of the normal fears and desires and wants and lusts of the world, but I'm learning how to use this new heart that has the heart of Jesus, that loves and cares in a way that often strikes me as unnerving. And so in that, I'm going to have to learn what this new heart means for me, just as you have to learn what that new heart have to get to. Get to know what a living heart really means and how it lives. And so we have a disposition towards learning that is one of expectation. That God can and will use the things in my life to grow and change and make me a more godly man. Uh, this happens in the life of King David uh, in, a, in, in numerous ways throughout his life. But this morning we're looking at chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. And we are going to look very briefly, I promise, at how... David models godly humility. 
how he models godly leadership in one of his better moments, and also some of the warnings uh, that follow along with it. So if you look uh, in those verses, sort of cut at your finger in the uh, mid-20s here, the story is, hopefully you know, I'll give you a quick uh, recap. David has been anointed king. He is uh, on the run from Saul, who's not a big fan of David being king in his place. Saul is still the current king. He has rejected God, Saul has. Uh, and David is the anointed king. And the people of Israel pretty much know this has happened. It is pretty well documented. It is out there in, uh, if not the printed press, certainly the conversations between people. So Israel is aware of this anointed king who is in exile. They're aware of Saul, and they're torn between the two. And there are, of course, uh, political factions as there are today. And so David, uh, his men hiding in the wilderness, go and request of a wealthy man some subsistence uh, and some sustenance. And they've been gracious. They've taken care of and guarded from bandits uh, this man's sheep. And uh, David says, well, let's go ask for a little bit of payment. And he responds poorly. He responds very poorly. Naboth uh, is a Saul man. And so Nabal is, uh, says, who is David? Uh, which he, of course, knows who he is. But it's a disrespectful comment. And it is an embracing that he is a man uh, for King Saul. David responds fairly human-like. Fairly male-like, I suppose. But uh, there's also hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So we'll just say he acts like a human. And he decides that he's going to have everybody strap on their swords and he's going to take care of Nabal's finances in an old school fashion. You don't want protection from me anymore? Well, then you won't have protection from me anymore. Thankfully, Nabal and all of his male servants uh, who were in the crosshairs, Abigail, Nabal's wife, a godly woman, hears what has happened and puts together a proper gift for David and rides out to hopefully head David off at the pass. So we pick up the story there. We'll be looking in our first point about comfort at verses 28 and 29. David's ego gets the best of him, and he is off to see Nabal dealt with. It is uh, David misunderstanding why he should be feared. See, in a moment like this, it's because I'm David, I'm a leader. I'm in charge. I should be in charge. I put up with all of this bubkis, and where's my respect? David has got his mighty men. He's pretty good with a sword. One-on-one -on -one is not someone I would want to confront, but that's not why David should be feared, and it's not why David should be followed. He confuses it at that moment that it's his personal power, and he responds as a human being, the reason that David should be feared by Nabal is that the Lord is with him. 
Not because David is the mighty man of valor that he is. The reason to fear David is because the Lord is with David. That the Lord fights David's battles for him and gives him victory above numbers and does amazing things and has anointed him. Which means Nabal's real beef is not with David, it's with the Lord. And at that moment, that's what David needs to understand. He needs to be comforted with the reality of who God is, which is what Abigail does. If you look at verses 28 and 29, please forgive the trespasses of your servants, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. David, don't be offended, but remember that the Lord will establish your house. Here is Abigail, interestingly enough, the first person to counsel David after Samuel's death. The chapter opens with when Samuel died. Abigail becomes the first counselor to David recorded in Scripture. And what she does is remind him of the same things that Samuel says, which is the Lord will establish your house. Let me comfort you and remind you, David, that the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Comforts with the truth of who God is. Comforts in the calling that David has. That in the midst of a moment of personal offense, you need to be reminded to, to be encouraged again about the character and nature of God and your role in it. You fight the Lord's battles. Let the Lord fight yours. You work on behalf of Israel. You are His hands and feet to protect us from the Philistines and all the others. Your job is to be His hands and feet. Let Him be your shield and defender. And David listens to her wisdom and her comfort. That's humility. In that moment, with all of his fire up, his blood up, as we used to say, he's got his sword on, he's headed, and he's been frustrated, right? Because he hasn't been able to take Saul out. He's had to fight all of these side battles. He's done everything else while he's being blasted in the press, being accused of all manner of things by Saul. And here's an opportunity to get to Saul through proxy. He may not be able to take Saul out, but my stars, is he going to work out a little couple of years of frustration on Nabal's house? And I get it. And yet God comes through Abigail, and a real leader listens and is humble enough in that moment to hear, not from the great mighty man Samuel, which he was, but from the wife of a fool, who brings the truth of God. We have leaders that will listen to wisdom where God decides to bring it. Second of all, confrontation. David's being foolish. Uh, He shouldn't engage in the same foolishness as Nabal. Uh, Verse 13. Oh, come on, fingers. And David said... To his men, every man strop on your sword, and every man 
of them strapped on their sword, and David also strapped on his sword. And then if we jump to uh, 21 and 22 of this same chapter, uh, he says, again, just classic, silly, silly statements. Silly in the sense if they weren't so horrifying. Now David said, Surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow and has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. True. God do so to the enemy of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Okay, it's horrifying and it's stupid. You don't threaten to slaughter everybody's servants because you didn't get a couple of lamb chops. Even if it was offensive and even if Nabal was absolutely a fool, we can't idealize as if somehow there is magnificent bravado in David's willingness to slaughter this man's household because he has been disrespected. It is horrifying, and there is nothing useful in having leadership, according to 1 Timothy, that is rash and reactionary and quick to anger. Now, if there is a need to get work done, and some of that work is unfortunate, then humbly, and sometimes woefully, that work may need to be done but not to defend my own ego and not to defend my own honor. There is a need to confront the foolishness of David. And again, if you think even great godly people, a man after God's own heart, will not act foolishly on given days, you haven't read much of David's story. David's leadership is not based on the fact that he is without sin or without error. But what we do see regularly in David is humility when confronted with his foolishness and his sin. Do your leaders allow themselves to be confronted? Do we look for those not who have the strength to take vengeance, not the strength to win, but the humility to be confronted when even in their moments where they feel like they're saying great brave heart speeches where everybody's going to follow and we're going to have this great, glorious battle and the whole premise is fundamentally wrong. That Abigail needs to say, that's the Lord's battle, not yours. Your job is to defend us from evil, not to defend yourself. David responds wisely in 32 and 33 to being confronted. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt. Now as he begins to sober up, he realizes this is not the work of the Lord, this was going to be on my hands. My vengeance meted out. Heart 
not of God, but of anger. And you have stayed me. And from working salvation with my own hands. Because salvation comes from the Lord. Which David knows well. Again, Paul is always packed with reflections on the Old Testament. And one should imagine that when he in Ephesians 5 is writing to the little church about how it can live well, and he says to it, live in such a way that you are known throughout your community as those who submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. A passage like David and Abigail provides the foundation by which uh, Paul's expectations of a community that lives differently, of kings who listen to common people, whose wisdom comes in the midst of their anger and breaks the power of sin, and what it means then before Paul even starts to talk about marriages and workplace relationships and children, he says the very character of the people of God is those who submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. It kept David from doing something foolish. Again, the hope and expectation for Paul is that in a community of mutual submission, we will encourage one another and at times confront one another before our foolishness comes fully to bloom. Lastly, call, verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. Abigail reminds David of his calling to be prince over Israel and speaks in the positive and in the future. This is what God's going to do. Don't forget what your calling is. The prince over Israel. The prince over God's covenant people. To not be a king like all the other nations. We are currently suffering under Saul. We know what it's like. We got what we deserved. We asked for a king like all the other nations. But oh, David... You've been anointed by the Lord, by Samuel, as one, as a man after God's own heart. Not a king like all the other nations. Not a leader like the world. She calls him to trust in his calling in verses 29 through 31. To do good for the sake of doing good. In what he did in guarding Nabal's sheep in 14 through 16. And to remember Always remember, verse 31, and then in verse 42, and David does. Because as all these things come to pass, and God does defend David, David is wise enough, and again, unfortunate time frame when there were a few too many wives in David's household, certainly feel like he should have stuck with Abigail and just stayed there. But he says, and Abigail hurried and rose and mounted the donkey and her five young women attended her and she followed the messages of David and became his wife. He remembered godly character. He remembered wisdom and he wanted it in his house and he honored Abigail. 
he called to her as she had called to him. So, what does it all summarize for a conclusion this morning? Good leaders are teachable. They slow down and listen. And they expect to grow. Grow in Christ-like character. What Paul suggests is the beginning of what an elder and a leader can and should be. Without some of those sinful things ensnaring them to speak positively, these are folks growing in Christ-like character and modeling that for God's people. Learning is something that God honors. The humility of being willing to learn even in suffering is, of course, something Christ models. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Though as a son he learned through what he suffered. It is that calling, that challenge to be people, whether we are leaders or we are uh, early in our spiritual life, to be those who expect to learn and to grow and to desire to have people who love us in our marriages and in our friendships, who love us enough to comfort us in the character of who God is. And Jesus was regularly comforted by the Holy Spirit, most poignantly in the garden. Comforted by the Spirit and the character of who God was, we see it in his prayer in John chapter 17. He was one who learned through what he suffered. And as God provides us opportunities to be leaders, to be mutual servants, May he continue to bless and honor us with the opportunity to learn what it is to be men and women whose hearts, whose hearts are like David's, willing to be shaped by God himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you do not despise learning, that you are gentle and kind and patient. Lord, that you modeled all of this, that you give us the ability to do it by your Holy Spirit, by your word, and by the Spirit in each one here. May we hear each other well, may we love each other well, that you might be lifted and glorified. In Christ's name, amen. The ushers would come forward at this time. We'll take up the tithes and offerings. Again, opportunity for us to give back a portion of what he has generously poured out on us.